Today is the third and final sermon in our series on uh, learning from Job, from his experience of suffering, and how that might inform our own experiences of suffering and our support for those suffering around us. I'm reading to you from Job chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Then Job answered, Listen carefully to my words, and let this be your consolation. Bear with me, and I will speak. Then, after I have spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint addressed to mortals? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand upon your mouth. When I think of it, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live on, reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their children are established in their presence and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves and never miscarries. Their, so I lost my place, sorry. Uh, they send out their little ones like a flock, and their children dance around. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, leave us alone. We do not desire to know your ways. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, thou our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As human beings, we have a tendency to compare. We may not intend to do it, it's just something we do. When we go through a hard time, we look at others and think, they don't go through stuff like that. Or we see what we have and others seem to have more. It just seems to be something wired into our human experience to think of ourselves and compare. I know how I went through that during a phase in my late 30s. I had very much wanted to have children. I didn't have kids. I was living in Naperville, which for those of you who know the western suburbs is the land of children. <laughs> and I served for eight years at Community United Methodist Church. My parents were also living in Naperville at the time, attending Grace United Methodist Church where Scott grew up. There was during those eight years, I had a wonderful dog. My parents would often take care of my dog. And so I would find myself having gone over to pick up my dog from doggy daycare and driving back from my parents' house to my house, from my parents' house to my house. And on that drive, there was a house that I would often pass. It was a really lovely little home. And in it lived a really neat family, a husband and wife that I really enjoyed and admired, and two just precious children. And most of the time, I would drive by, and I would drive past their house, and I would pray for them, and I would thank God for them. I would just acknowledge what a neat couple they are and uh, bless them. But I have to confess that that's not what I always felt when I drove past that house. Sometimes it was late at night and I was tired and lonely and I thought of my own desire for children and I'd go past the house and I'd pray, God, couldn't I have kids? 
And sometimes I'd go past the house and I would feel tired and lonely and I'd say, could you throw me a bone? <laughs> I am here. I think I'm doing your work. I'm really trying. Would it kill you, God? <laughs> you know, really, is it too hard? Other people manage it. Apparently, I can't. You know, just... It wasn't always pretty between God and me, driving, to, dri driving past the house of the perfect family. I don't think I'm alone in this stuff, friends. <laughs> I don't think I'm the only one of us who has situations where we compare ourselves to others and we think, boy, they've got it easy, and boy, I've got it hard. We know that as part of our human experience, and we wonder how to address that as people of faith. And Job gives us such a powerful example of how we live in our suffering and yet move ahead in faith. Job teaches us that it's fine to cry it out, to pray it out, and to point out the injustices of this world. So I want to reflect with you on Job's teaching and see the resources he gives us in this final session. The passage that I read to you is a classic example of comparing, but perhaps comparing gone wrong. When we read the story of Job, for those of you not familiar with it, Job is a good and upright man, and he has sons and daughters who love each other, and they feast together, they have meals for one another, hosting each other. He's very wealthy, he has herds of cattle and herds of other animals, and Job's got it all, and he's very just and righteous. And then one day, his children are having a wonderful dinner party, and the, uh, his animals are out, and he gets a messenger who comes and says, the Sabaeans came and stole all your camels. And then he gets another messenger that something happened to the flocks. And then he gets another messenger saying that a terrible wind came up, and it blew down the pillars of his son's home, and all of his children were killed. And in a very short period of time, he loses all his flocks, which were all his wealth in that day. He loses all his children. His wife remains, so he has his wife and his health. And then he gets sores and all over his skin, and they hurt so much, he takes pieces of broken pottery to scrape them in the pain and the agony. Job has the worst there is. His friends gather around him, and at first they do exactly the right thing. They just sit with him. They know they don't have any words for him, but they just sit in silence for seven days. Well done, friends. But they can't stay sitting. <laughs> and so those friends start arguing with Job, and they give him platitudes. And some of them argue, look, Job, you've got to have sinned. If, you, if all of this happened to you, you had to have sinned. But then the speech right before the speech I read to you comes from Job's friend Zophar. And Zophar's argument is basically... Don't worry about it. Those who are wicked always get their just desserts in this life. Don't worry about it. Their crops will fail. Their children will die. Don't worry about it. Job responds, and that's the passage I read to you, and Job basically says, yeah, but that's not what happened so far. <laughs> Plenty of unjust people live to old age. Plenty of the children of unjust people live to old age. Plenty of people go throughout their lives and their resources, even if the resources were stolen, were never taken away from them. Job basically says, you know, Zophar, you're trying to comfort me and you're telling me bunk. He won't put up with the platitudes he's given. 
Don't we find how often in our moments of great suffering, people try to console us with these platitudes? Things like, oh, God won't send you more than you can handle. Baloney. <laughs> or, oh, don't worry, it'll all work out. Don't worry, you know, they'll get their just desserts. Don't worry. A lot of those platitudes we use just aren't true. We look around us and feel, you know, that's just not how it plays out. And so when Job cries out and says, you know, that's not how it always works out, Job is just. And God does not censure Job for that. Yes, we want to make it all better. We want to promise things we can't promise. Oh, don't worry. Yes, you miscarried, but the next child will be fine. We, we don't know that. Oh, don't worry. This will happen. Don't worry. Sometimes what people are suffering remains what they suffer. And it doesn't get fixed in the way the person wants how it is but we're not done there but that is how it is so as people of faith we hear the story of job and we learn no we don't need to fall into those platitudes that don't answer it they just do harm they just fail to acknowledge the genuine suffering someone's experiencing but we also learn in job that there are situations of injustice that need to be studied and can be redressed it's been uh, poignant or ironic for me this week to be working on the story of Job and unjust suffering and to be doing so during the week that we're hearing reports back from Baltimore. After the death of Freddie Gray, there's been a study of what are the police practices in Baltimore, and we've been hearing through our news there were some real unjust practices going on. Now, that doesn't mean every police officer participated in them, but as they've done the study, they've found, you know, there were patterns of stopping African Americans more than uh, whites in Baltimore, and there were patterns of arrests more for African Americans than for whites, and they found We've got some systemic injustice going on here. This needs to be addressed. We need to lift up these injustices, not to, to brush them under the rug, but to look and say, is something we can do here so that injustice doesn't continue? Some of you, I'm sure, will have read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and looked at the ways in which there continues to be systemic injustice targeting specifically African Americans in American culture. One of the places that she studied is the issue of sentencing uh, for people who possess cocaine. Now, there's powdered cocaine, there's crack cocaine, they're both cocaine. What she found and others have found in their studies is that powdered cocaine tends to be used more by whites, crack cocaine tends to be used more by African Americans. The sentences for powdered cocaine are much less stringent than the sentences for crack cocaine. Both of them cocaine possession, but when cocaine was possessed, possessed by a white person, the sentence was lighter. And when cocaine was possessed by an African-American person, the sentence was tougher. That's systemic injustice. We need, when we see injustice, to study it. Is this just a random encounter, which sometimes it is, like Job's, an unusual one-time thing? Or is there a pattern here we need to look at and redress? like Michelle Alexander's work in The New Jim Crow. So what do we do as people of faith when faced with tremendous suffering? We don't fall for the platitudes. We don't try to heap them on others. We look and see if there's a pattern of injustice that needs to be studied and potentially to be redressed. 
But finally, we also, when we go through these times, acknowledge that we live in mystery and there's a lot we don't know. And we know that God's victory is the final word. What about that mystery? The truth is we have perceptions of what's going, around, going on around us, but we often just don't know. We don't know what's going on in other lives. People live in privacy. People live behind closed doors. I think about that family that for many years I perceived to be the perfect family. After I moved away from that church, I learned from the wife it was not the perfect family. It was not the perfect marriage. I had never told her, of course, my feelings when I would go past her house, and I found out that that was a very broken, very sad marriage, and the couple divorced. Boy, when I was driving past thinking, boy, they're the couple that has it all, they were inside thinking, is this ever going to end? I didn't know. Maybe if they'd known I was driving past, they would have thought, oh, if only to be Jane, not trapped in a painful marriage. We don't know. We don't know what's going on for other people. And so when we handle our suffering by comparing to others, we're just so often wrong. We don't know what's happening in other people's lives. We don't know what the end of the story will be. We know a very small part, and we're often wrong. What does Jesus say about these issues of suffering? There's one brief story he tells. We kind of read it over quickly in the Gospel of Luke in which some people are doing that blamey thing again. They're saying, you know, those people up in Galilee, Pilate killed them when they were offering their sacrifices. Were they more sinful? And Jesus says, no. And if you don't repent, you too will suffer. Jesus constantly turns our attention back on ourselves, saying, you know what, don't, don't do all that. Will justice be done for them? So don't worry about them. Worry about yourselves. Have your relationship with me. We also know that as Christians, there are going to be a lot of battles along the way, but we already know that God won the war. We're going to lose some of the battles. Some of the things that happen along the way are not going to be as we would have desired. But at the end, the end is justice. Another story not as well known within the Gospels is the story of the weeds and the wheat. This appears in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about a, a prosperous farmer. And the prosperous farmer has sown beautiful wheat in a field he had cleared. And then the servants come back and say, Master, there, there's wheat growing up, but there are also weeds in this field. Didn't you sow wheat? And the master says, yes, I sowed wheat. And the servants say, well, then why are there, why are there weeds in this field? And the, serv and the master says, well, an enemy did it. And the servants say, well, so should we pull out all the weeds now? And the master says, no. Don't pull out all the weeds now, because if you pull out the weeds now, some of that wheat that's very fragile will come up with the weeds, and both will be damaged. Let them be together. At the time of harvest, we'll separate it out. Don't pull those weeds out, because some of that fragile wheat might be damaged. How did that happen? An enemy did it. 
we get caught when we try to explain everything that happens in our world as something that God desired. And yet when we read through the scriptures, we know that many things happen that God did not desire. God does not desire the oppression of widows and orphans. God does not desire the suffering of the innocents. All through the Gospels, we see that some things happen that God does not desire, and our calling is to speak out against it, to act against it, but to acknowledge that some things that are going to happen that are not God's desire. In the first week of the first time we looked at Job, I told the story of Jerry Sitzer. The story is recounted in a wonderful book called A Grace Disguised. Jerry Sitzer is the professor at a Christian university. He and his wife were homeschooling their children. They'd gone up to a powwow on an Indian reservation. And when he and his mother and wife and four children were driving back home through the darkness late at night, a car came flying at them 80, hour, 80 miles an hour. A drunk driver smashed into their car. And Jerry, in an instant, lost his mother, his wife, and his younger daughter. Three generations at once. Can there be any suffering like this? It was a terrible, terrible loss. Did God cause that accident? No. The man who was driving at 80 miles an hour was an alcoholic who was not in recovery. Alcoholism is a terrible evil that sometimes causes things to happen in our world that do damage that God would never desire. So many stories come along that are carried out by others. We look at people suffering from cancer. Does God desire cancer? No. It is a disease of cells multiplying out of control. It is not God's desire for the world. But it happens, and we work against it, and we work justly when we work against cancer. Some things are carried out by people who live by wickedness rather than by love. And those acts carried out by wickedness do damage that is not God's desire. And yet, over and over and over again, we see how God brings new life and brings redemption doesn't necessarily turn it back to what it was before, but brings new life and hope beyond what we could see. As Christians, obviously our deepest story of that is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus who taught and loved and healed and created a community of people around him, but oh, there were people who felt threatened from the beginning and they picked at him and they tried to trip him up and they opposed him and eventually they turned against him, they plotted against him, they grabbed him away from his followers, they held a mock trial against him, they tortured him, and they killed him. And all of that is true. And none of that is taken away by God. But what God showed is all that suffering was not the end of the story. And after his death, after three days, God raised Jesus from the dead returned him to the people, and spent the remaining 40 days of Jesus' life equipping his followers to go out and to serve in his name. Did God make it all exactly the way it was with Jesus before? Nope. Jesus wasn't going to stay there forever. He had 40 days to equip his people and send them out, and then Jesus would ascend to the Father. In that block of time, Jesus carried out his work so that we know that the victory remains with God. But in the meantime, there can be some serious suffering. And in the suffering, God can surprise us. 
In Jerry Sitzer's book, A Grace Described, he talked about surprise graces of his life of bereavement. Now, this does not cover over any of the suffering he experienced. He is not making it pretty. But he was struck, as he reflected, by the relationships that developed between him and his children. The truth was, when his children were little, he was very busy as a university professor. His wife loved being a stay-at-home mom, and certainly he was involved in his kids' lives, but, you know, his wife was kind of in charge. It was terrible to lose his mother and his wife and his youngest daughter. It was terrible. He will never stop missing them. And in his experience, suddenly, as a widower father, he developed relationships with his children he never would have had. Has his, had his wife survived. What do you do with that? Does that mean God caused the accident? I don't think so. But can God redeem that experience and bring an unexpected blessing? Yes, God can. And God does over and over again. Throughout the book, A Grace Disguised, Jerry Sitzer tells stories of his terrible suffering but of remarkable things that happened and blessings that came into his family over and over again, even in their grief. And this happens to us in very small ways. I experienced it just yesterday. It's been kind of a tough week. My dad's been in the hospital. He's not able to speak because of his larynx haven't been removed from the cancer. And sometimes nurses look at him and think, eh, he's old, which I've got to say I have no tolerance for. <laughs> so it's been kind of a hard week. It's been a hard week getting him the care he needed. Yesterday afternoon, I was over visiting, and a lovely nurse came in. And she had a little time. And I was commenting about how Dad had a beard, and Dad has always been a clean-shaven man, and so for him to sit in a hospital and be growing a beard he wouldn't want, it just, it's another layer of not feeling like yourself. And I said, boy, is there any way for Dad to get shaved? Well, it turned out that that wonderful nurse, Evelyn, was the daughter of a barber. <laughs> that beautiful woman took a washcloth. She got it good and hot because her barber dad taught her how to soften up the beard. That beautiful woman, Evelyn, on the three wing at OSF, great nurse, <laughs> got that washcloth. She, put, she checked to make sure it wasn't too hot for my dad. She put that over to soften up his beard, and then she shaved him. And in the shaving, it came out her own father had passed away. And I told her how proud her dad would be of, of her, knowing how good it feels to get a shave when you don't feel well and everything else is messed up. She treated my dad's body like a sacrament. It was so beautiful. And at the end of that time, I'm getting ready to leave, and I kind of say, well, i got to go. I'm a pastor, and i got to go finish my sermon. <laughs> Saturday afternoon, that's how it is. And she said, oh, where are you a pastor? I said, Christ United Methodist Church, explained where it was. She said, oh, she's a member of a CME congregation. You know, as United Methodists, we're in relationship with AMEs and, C and AME Zion and CMEs. We all come from our Wesleyan heritage. She, she just glowed as she talked about her church. She loves her church, and she loves the Wesleyan heritage. She had just been at a training, and we had this moment of gushing over our Wesleyan theology and how much we love it. And I went back to finish my sermon, and Evelyn went on treating people like their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That didn't cure Dad's situation, but boy, did it bless me. Over and over again, when we're in hard times, God gives us these blessed moments, these God moments that remind us, huh, 
that's right. You're in charge. It's going to be okay. Thank you, God. There's hard things that we bear, and we need that reminder. Oh, yeah. There are people all around us. There are clouds of witnesses. God is profoundly at work in our lives. And we know that although some battles may be lost along the way, the war is won, and love is stronger than death. Thanks be to God. Amen.